Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 141st videocast, 131st podcast for the week ending June 30th, 2022. We're just coming off the worst first half of the year in over 50 years. Uh, that's the bad news. We'll talk about some of the good news moving forward. Uh, that's the S&P results uh, history. Uh, but we've got some really good news, actually, uh, both, I think, on the markets front. But more importantly, uh, tomorrow I'll sit down with Philip Vassilou over at Legatum. And if you recall, uh, maybe over a month ago, I did a segment on our video cast about the Chandler brothers, uh, Richard and Chris Chandler. And uh, tomorrow we're going to have the opportunity to do some question and answer with Chris Chandler's CIO, Chief Investment Officer of the Legatum Fund, and, uh, and that's uh, Chris Chandler's fund. And, uh, you know, Philip has an extensive background. He's a partner in the firm. Uh, he's got skin in the game. Uh, he's been with them now for 16 years, since 2006, when Legatum started. And uh, his background, he was at Goldman Sachs in London and New York, and then he worked for the Dubai Development Investment Authority. So he's going to give, give us some insights. Not only how did they turn uh, $10 million, the, the brothers, into $5 billion over two decades, uh, but what are they investing in now? And how has their philosophy changed or stayed the same uh, since that benchmark in 2006 when, when they went into two, two uh, separate funds? Uh, but just to put this in perspective, for those of you thinking, well, yeah, if I started with $10 million, I could get rich too. Um, it, that's backward thinking, because if you actually do the math, uh, it's 500x over 20 years. So if you started um, you know, with $100, uh, for those of you uh, who are you know, really in a tough situation, you'd get $50,000. If you started with $1,000, you'd get $500,000. Uh, which is some serious coin if you're only starting with with a thousand dollars. If you started with ten thousand dollars, you would get to five million dollars. That gets you to a pretty nice retirement. And then if you started with a hundred thousand, using their philosophies and having their returns, you would wind up with fifty million, which is reasonably wealthy for most people. Uh, if you started with a million bucks, which many have uh, in their 401k after a, a lifetime of working, you could wind up with $500 million. And as they started with 10 million, uh, they got to 5 billion. And I know there are a, a decent number of people I know personally listen to this video cast that have well more than 100 million. Uh, that if you started with 100 million, you would wind up with 50 billion over 20 years. Uh, not to say it can be easily replicated uh, or that everyone who listens to the interview and uh, reads the article are going to be uh, getting the same type of results. But even if you got one-tenth of that and um, put it to work, uh, I think you're going to see incredible um, uh, results over time. Uh, their key has always been, you know, buying at the right price, deep value, but also concentration, knowing what they own, etc. So we're going to get into that. This is a good um, primer if you want to read this because we're going to record and then we'll post at our normal time next Thursday 
for the video cast will be episode number 142. And I uh, also want to thank uh, Gabe Farhadian, who listens to our video cast. He, I believe, uh, sent it to one of the higher ups at Legatum, and then it kind of worked its way through the chain. And their comms guy, uh, Daniel O'Neill, reached out to me uh, to set up the interview. So, uh, you know, it just goes to show that you never know who's listening and, uh, and it's been phenomenal and, uh, and it's nice to have them all as uh, subscribers to the podcast. I'm honored and humbled to say the least. But this is the article from Institutional Investor that was out in uh, March 16, 2016. The title is called Secrets of Sovereign. Uh, it'd probably be very useful to uh, listen, you know, to read that ahead of next week's uh, video cast because we'll we'll cover some of the historic investments, but we want to cover, try to get into more of what they're doing today versus what they did in the past. And uh, very very excited. Today's video cast, in that context, getting ready for tomorrow is going to be much shorter. We're going to just get to the point of stuff, and um, and then and then next week's will be more extensive. Also, any media that I do between now and next Thursday uh, won't be acknowledged on that video cast. It'll be acknowledged the following week uh, just to keep everyone's heads up. Last week, we had a super long video cast, uh, um, an hour and 22 minutes. Uh, if you have a chance to check that out, if you missed it, do do that. But we did not have time to cover the Ask Me Anything questions. So I want to cover them at the beginning this week uh, against our normal trend. Uh, just to get to them because these, uh, uh, I guess in both cases, gentlemen uh, took the time out to write good questions. So first is from uh, Drew. Uh, he does not specify first name only. So uh, Drew Byrne wrote, um, Hi Tom, really appreciate your very important video cast last week to explain the Cooper Standard. Uh, it was... Uh, stock changes or some might say ball drop okay so this was when cooper standard put out the note that they were uh retaining goldman sachs to handle the refinancing of their debt the market took it as restructuring it's since worked it worked its way back up but we did use the opportunity to buy stock i think it dropped down to like three dollars and eighty cents it's back up over five dollars um the other thing that is going on is that uh, Cooper Standard was being in the re Russell rebalancing, which is now completed. Uh, they were coming out of the Russell index because their market cap had fallen from you know three billion, which we think it, or two and a half billion, which we think it's, it goes back to over the next three to five years, uh, to you know seventy million, where we had an opportunity to buy you know over two point one percent of the company. So. Um, uh, so, so I think half of the selling was from people who didn't read the headline. The other half was just institutions getting it off of their books before the rebalancing. Now that artificial selling pressure is in the rearview mirror, that that rebalancing is done. Now today is you know end of quarter uh, for the market in general. Just ignore the end of quarter noise. The last day of the quarter never makes any sense, or in this case, the half. Um, and then, um, okay. So uh, Drew says, I'm also planning to sell the stock in my tax-free account to rotate into, oh, to sell stock in my tax-free account to rotate into CPS if the stock price drops enough and was reassured to hear you're on similar strategy. 
the CPS investment is money I'm comfortable with, even if it went to zero, but such potential opportunities don't often come around. Uh, very grateful for you sharing your opinion on this. My question is, what is your rough threshold percentage reduction from here where you'd be comfortable adding more CPS stock, e.g. if this price dipped to 350, 375 before the next rate hikes? Uh, would you consider adding as there would likely be further downside from there with rate hikes? And if so, what percentage would you add? Uh, rate hikes has nothing to do with this idea whatsoever and will have zero impact on the stock. Um, I believe, as I've said in recent podcasts and video casts, that more than the amount of rate hikes that we're going to get has already been priced in. Meaning, look at the two-year yield. It was up at 310. Uh, we're at 150. Maybe we get another 75 and another 50. That puts us at 275. It's already more than priced in. So if you think every time they hike rates, the market's going to crash, you're, you're mistaken. As a matter of fact, there's an article out this week on biotech that says just that. And when you look at the data, it's completely false and absolutely wrong. Uh, and we're going to spend some time on that. So um, <clears throat> Where we, we uh, and, and there would likely be further downside from there. What percentage would you add? My thinking is that I don't want to deploy further dry powder too early as I have a decent position to date and in case the stock went to one or two dollars. I'm also trying to gauge the likely effect of further planned Fed hikes on the stock price to help plan future CPS purchases in my tax-free account. I'd appreciate your thoughts as I hadn't known about you at the time of range resource and multi-bagger so I haven't got uh, that experience to draw on. By the way, there have been several news articles on two-year waiting lists for many cars in the UK and Europe too, especially EVs with huge order demand, as you well know. Given CPS is a major European supplier, there's likely great potential there when chips flood, uh, chips flood back. Thanks again for your stellar weekly content. Hedge fund tips by, by far is the media highlight of my week. All the best, Drew. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Drew, and thank you for your continued support. I know you're one of the consistent people who comment and like on uh, social media and also on YouTube for the videos. So I appreciate that. I know many people watch these videos on the hedge fund tip site, so they don't know how to comment. You have to click the link in the video to get to YouTube and then you can leave your comments below. Um, I wouldn't get too cute about this. As a matter of fact, someone put a comment on last week's video uh, after um, CPS rallied from like 380 to 560 or something like that. I hope um, CPS falls again so I can so I can buy some. And the point of the fact is when if and when Cooper Standard falls to three dollars or one dollar, what people don't account for is there's always a reason. So that fear that's going to be in the market is what caused the person who left that comment last week to say that because they obviously missed it at 380 when they had, you know, four weeks uh, ahead of, uh, of advance notice uh, when we talked about it and we said it could go to one before it goes to 100 uh, and it could also go to zero, which we've emphasized over and over. This is not a free lunch. This is this is pricing in bankruptcy. Um, with the bonds, you know, up from 40 to 50 cents, uh, that's a positive sign. But at the same time, we are, we are running against the clock in terms of uh, 350 million term loan comes due at the end of next year, number one. Uh, and number two, we're betting that the chips are going to come in quickly. Um, 
you know, we do know what the business looks like in terms of the operational leverage. If you look the first quarter after the pandemic crash, uh, the company did 30, 40 million of EBITDA and it went from, you know, $8 to $44 in one quarter. We do think we're going to have the, uh, a, a very good probability. You know, remember, amateurs deal in absolutes, professionals deal in probabilities. We think we have a very high probability of seeing one, two, or three quarters like that before the refinancing. We also know that um, many investment banks are choking on about $80 billion of LBO debt that they guaranteed uh, uh, for the likes of Apollo, for the likes of uh, private equity firms in December and January when credit markets were wide open and there was no care in the world. What that means is they guaranteed certain pricing so the bank has to eat it and there's 80 billion of those losses, which means all the people that were choking on that when times were good are now taking the losses, which means what? They're not backstopping anything, which means the credit markets are basically closed with a few exceptions that I know of uh, that were on the other side of many of those trades in December and January. I think Goldman is one that could backstop a deal because uh, they're in a better position and they usually don't get caught on the wrong side of the, the excesses. Um, uh, and uh, maybe a couple of the Swiss banks could probably do a similar situation uh, because they didn't get caught on the wrong side in December and January. But by and large, across the board, they got to work through that stuff. I do believe the credit markets are going to reopen relatively quickly once the equity markets bounce back. I think that's going to be a function of now inflation expectations rolling over. We're going to talk about that today, uh, as well as uh, I think uh, earnings are going to be less bad than feared. People are concerned about margins. People are concerned about estimates have to come down dramatically in the next three weeks. Uh, and I think they're going to uh, be a lot less, uh, less bad than feared. And that will fuel what could be a summer rally that will start to uh, unlock credit markets. And I think uh, uh, Cooper will be able to get out in that window before the end of the year. But, you know, there's no telling that they can't. Now, what's the margin of safety? They have a lot of outs. In poker, we talk about outs when you have a hand. And the outs they have is of the 750 million of property, plant, and equipment. I estimate about 20% of that they could do sale leasebacks like they did in um, Germany. They got 50 million, which is more than expected. So call it 120, $125 million on that front if they had to, plus the sale leaseback, plus the um, $425 million liquidity that they have right now that takes them to 550. They only need 350 or 325 or 350. A anyway, ample liquidity. Uh, they also, don't forget their contracts now, they're getting a lot of retroactive pay coming back, number one. So they're not going to be burning cash as, as much. And going forward, they've got, as of the last quarter, 60% in index-based contracts. I think that's going to be higher at the end of Q2. So let's say it goes to 70%. Uh, so their margins are going to increase dramatically. And then finally, this is my covert green play because they get 20% 20 20 more per car uh, from... Uh, EVs than they do from uh, internal combustion engines. My models are on, on the basis of internal combustion engine, but they do have uh, four of the top five EV platforms as their customers. And you saw, you know, Ford is selling the heck out of that Mustang, uh, et cetera, that Mustang car, truck, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so if, if 
EVs do accelerate, which I'm, I, I'm agnostic about. I, I just think it's cool that we have a covert green play. If, if it doesn't work, our base case is based on ICEs. If it does work, we can make even more money than we expect. So um, uh, as far as like what percentage does it have to fall and why, it really just depends on the news and it depends on the timing. You know, uh, how much more I'd be willing to buy in June of next year if it's falling to a dollar in June of next year is going to vary much greater than if it falls to a dollar next month. Uh, next month, they still got a huge runway. So what would be the catalyst for it to fall that much? I'd have to see. Maybe they, you know, one of their, what, whatever it happens to be. And then based on the information, I'd decide how much of stocks that I have in my portfolio that I think are going to be doubles over the next three years or two years, am I going to sell off to create the cash to buy something that I think could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus bagger. Um, uh, and, and that's how I'll determine it. So it's, it's dynamic. It's not some formula like a stop loss where they teach all the retail traders to lose their money consistently. It is, um, it's based on, De you know, decades of experience is basically what it comes down to. You have to live through these different periods in history and study companies that have been through similar situations like Tenneco from 2001 to 2003, where uh, Munger, Munger made 8x in, you know, 14 months when they inflect, they inflect fast and hard. Uh, inventory, dealer inventories are at 25 days worth of uh, stock versus uh, 70 days pre-pandemic. So there's a lot of backlog, even if we do go into a shallow recession that needs to be restored, uh, you know, as quickly as possible. So all of these things are in play in our thesis. But to answer your question, I have the position I want now. So if it ran away from me here, I'd be super excited and elated that I never got to buy more. If it, uh, if we did get one or two more news events or market events or just you know nonsense or some fund blowing up that has to blow out of their position um you know we would look at again what you know the the highest and best use of capital on a on a risk adjusted basis probability weighted is how we would think about it so whether it's and i never go i've never gone all into a position at once or all out of a position at once. It's always phasing into my position over time and phasing out of my position over time. I'll be taking some off at, you know, you know, at 7x. I'll be taking some off at, you know, 10 to 12x. I'll be taking some off at 18x. And hopefully I'll be taking some off at 25 or 30x, a very small portion of, of tail that I like to leave on when I think that it can go higher, but I'm not sure about other, other situations. So um, that is a long answer to a relatively long question, uh, but a good question. So I uh, do appreciate you sending that. And um, that's that. So uh, DH sends a thing. Uh, hi, Tom. I wanted to get your thoughts on using the CFA for a potential job at a hedge fund. I'm almost done with university and currently working at a capital markets analyst intern at a real estate investment firm, $3 billion under management. I come from a non-target school in Florida with, and a decent GPA. I'm sitting for level one just before graduation. Although the fundamentals are roughly the same, I'm more passionate about equity markets than real estate. Do you think the switch is probable and how much more do you think the CFA will help based on your experience? Uh, you'll never use the CFA to get a job at a hedge fund. That's table, st table stakes. 
if you don't have experience in business or a track record of success in investing, uh, an MBA or a CFA is kind of like table stakes. Everyone has that. Uh, if you really like the equity markets, you should be getting the CFA for yourself. Uh, if you're you know, new to investing and you don't have a decade more of experience and have lived through and managed money through uh, several cycles, uh, that's, that's your starting point. Um, and that, that'll really tell you whether you like the markets or not, or you just think that the grass is greener. The grass is always going to be greenest where you water it. So, um, you know, just flip through the Forbes 400. There are plenty of people that uh, make a lot more in real estate than do in hedge funds. And there are people in hedge funds that make more than, than real estate people. Uh, but if you're passionate about it, you should just get the CFA for yourself. And if that happens to lead, a, lead to a job, fantastic. Um, you know, coming from a non-target school, um, you, you know, the thing about finance is, I would say finance and law, is people are giving you their money uh, in finance and in law, they're trusting you to solve a major problem for them. So their quick go-to is going to be, where did you go to school? They want to size you up in like a minute uh, just to see, you know, what they think it means to be smart. I'll, I'll take street smart over book smart any day of the week, uh, but that's just not the way the world works. So, um, so the only disadvantage of going to a non-target school is just getting your foot in the door. Once you get in the foot, your foot in the door, it's all about performance. So in that case, I would say like, you know, you probably can come out of, out of an Ivy and through your network, get your foot in the door at a hedge fund and then maybe later get your CFA. Uh, or just, you know, if you haven't, you know, if you've, learned enough uh, and you can do competent analysis, you know, maybe you don't have to get your CFA, but coming out of a non-target school, I would do that because that's going to give you some cachet that maybe you don't have uh, coming out of a non-target school. And it shows initiative number one, and it shows that you actually are passionate, not just some kid that wants to make a lot of money, but isn't willing to do the work. So, um, so I, you know, if what you say is true and you love the markets, and this is the then then do it for yourself. And in the meantime, hustle and try to get your foot in the door, even if you're in the mailroom, um, and and start to add value and start to to show that you can that your value add and your ideas work, uh, and they're thorough and they show diligence and work, not just you know putting garbage together and seeing what sticks against the wall, uh, which I do see from a lot of people that reach out to me. So, um, you know, look. You figured out how to get into a real estate firm to, that has $3 billion under management and intern there. So obviously, you're smart enough to do that. You're going to be smart enough to get into a hedge fund if that's what you want to do. Uh, and, and I think you'll do it. So uh, I think you're on the right track. Um, and, uh, and start to educate yourself, not for the benefit of your employer, but for the benefit of yourself. Because uh, that's ultimately what's going to matter in the long term. And, uh, and thanks for the great question. All right. Uh, moving right along, media this week, want to thank Amruta Kandikar and Sriyashi Sanyal for including me in their article on Reuters. This was uh, three days ago. I said, quote, I think there's an overwhelming feeling that inflation may be coming down and the Fed may not have to be as aggressive as anticipated moving forward. 
uh, said Tom Hayes. As early as a week ago, unequivocally, everyone did feel that 75 basis points was guaranteed. I, I think now those probabilities have come down a little bit and it's kind of an open story. And I think that's, uh, that's where we are moving into uh, the next Fed meeting in July. Uh, I saw this on MarketWatch. It says the MarketWatch 50 2022 nominees submit, submit your nominee. MarketWatch is now accepting nominations for the 50 most influential in, in individuals in financial markets today. The MarketWatch 50 will be made up of people whose actions and opinions impact markets, moving prices, stocks, uh, influencing strategies of market participants and determining how markets function. They are the traders, investors, policymakers, CEOs, and influencers who made a difference in 2022. Uh, the deadline for submissions is September 1st, 2022. If you found this videocast podcast and research notes helpful, um, you know, and, and uh, you think it's deserved, you should, uh, you know, I'd, I'd uh, invite you to, uh, to nominate me. And uh, here's why. The more people that listen to this, the more incentive I have to keep putting it out every single week, free of charge. Uh, for the benefit of uh, uh, a broad spectrum, you know, again, you know, from people that are uh, centimillionaires and, and in some cases billionaires that are listening to this and some of the new people like you just heard from uh, uh, DH who's, who's applying for his first job at a hedge fund. Um, you know, the, the bigger the audience, uh, you know, the more incentive and the more uh, effort and the more time uh, that we want to invest to to keep moving forward and uh, and growing this. So uh, if it makes sense and if it's uh, from your heart that it has had an impact for you over the last month or year or two years, uh, then go ahead and, and drop that in there. Uh, and um, uh, uh, that would be, I'd be very grateful for that. Moving along, uh, quote of the day, the intelligent investor is a realist who sells to the optimist and buys from the pessimist. Well, there's no question we've mastered selling from the pessimists. Uh, for those of you who've been with us, we've had some opportunities to sell to the optimists in the case of uh, energy, in the case of banks, uh, you know, when we were buying from the pessimists in 2020. So now we're gonna do that with China Tech, we're gonna do it with Biotech, and hopefully with Cooper Standard uh, in coming years. This was very interesting from John Kicklighter. In a distinct contrast to most major Western indices, China's Shanghai Composite is close to returning to a technical, quote, bull market, a 20% recovery from cyclical lows on a daily close basis in this case. So this was from yes, uh, two days ago. And, uh, and I think that story is just beginning. Uh, who would have thunk in March in the midst of the, uh, chaos when people were JP Morgan was putting out their uninvestable note and we which created the opportunity for us to uh, you know triple the size and dramatically reduce the basis and set us up for an unbelievable setup here into the back half so um, uh, that's that uh, so now we're going to go through some China stuff just to keep you updated and try to get through this one quickly Beijing offers cash subsidies to spur demand for new energy cars so we're gonna see more and more stimulus. Beijing reopened schools for more students as COVID eases. All this stuff happened this week. By the way, I think today they were opening Beijing, uh, Shanghai, Disneyland, which is kind of symbolic and very, very important. If it's not today, it's, it's in the works. Uh, Apple supplier Foxconn starts, hiring, starts new hiring spree at world's largest iPhone factory in China ahead of next product launch. So that's good to see for Apple. That's a, that's a bellwether for the S&P. 
with the weighting in the S&P. So if that's true, that will be a positive thing in coming quarters. China's economy improves from June, excuse me, China's economy improves in June from lockdown induced slump. Aggregate indicator returns to neutral after two month drop. Car sales picked up in June, but home sales still down. So you can see some of this truck traffic picking up in the different cities off of the, the lockdown low, lows. So uh, that's very exciting. Happier small firms, you're seeing uh, stocks rise on optimism about the domestic re recovery. Here's small business confidence has shot up. Uh, um, steel rebar inventory, let's see. Onshore stocks shot up about, looks like about 10% there. Uh, car sales improve. So, and their inflation continues to come down in part because they are buying all of Russia's oil at massive discounts. So we've created a strategic advantage for China to build their SPR while we continue to um, suffer massive pain at the pump, unintended consequences of poorly thought out policy. Um, car sales, you see them just stair-stepping higher off the last couple of months since the lockdown ended. Uh, real estate sales percent, they're starting to come back up. Uh, steel, etc. So all these things that we anticipated would happen are starting to play out. Chinese fintech giant Ant Group appoints risk control veteran as executive in consumer lending arm amid restructuring. So Kui Zhaowen, a former risk strategy management executive at Ant's micro lending business, is now vice president of Changqing Ant Consumer Finance. There has been increasing speculation that Ant, which abruptly canceled its IPO in Shanghai and Hong Kong in 2020, is nearing the end of a long restructuring. So that's going to be a big deal uh, if we can get that IPO out before the end of the year. We own a third of that as owners of BABA. That is not priced in the stock at these levels. It could be a huge thing. Bloomberg Law, one of China's top tech investors, see crackdown turning point, reassuring messages on regulatory front a boost. This is Fred Hu. Uh, he is the uh, Primavera chairman and a rainmaker who started the $17 billion Chinese private equity firm Primavera Capital, uh, said reassuring messages concerning regulation resilient earnings and beaten down valuations now make the sector interesting for investors. This was the guy on the cover a couple of months ago that was worried about the future. Now he has turned opinion follows trend, uh, which is positive to see China. And he's he's huge. I think that's the largest private equity fund in China. Uh, China loosens its COVID quarantine rules. These travel stocks are flying. You all saw that. Uh, U.S. eyes Biden Xi meeting in the next few weeks sees growing convergence on China. That's from two days ago. They're going to do a call. It's largely anticipated he is going to um, take off some of the tariffs on the $300 billion of goods to lower prices for American consumers. That will probably be met with a reciprocal goodwill effect. And we saw some... Uh, indication and signaling to that effect today where this headline from Reuters said China to extend tariff exemptions on some U.S. products so they're probably getting ahead of it you know tit for tat you're going to be nice to us we're going to be nice to you uh, good things can happen if that trend persists China stocks outperform on unexpected COVID shift 
Uh, bullish calls are rising on Chinese stocks as the CSI 300 index inches near bull market, uh, just below 20% gain. The last time it went from that negative to that positive was 2014 uh, and 2015. And, um, and good things, really good things happen. If you go back to the Alibaba chart, the thing was up 200 some odd percent. So, um, so that's, that's a positive thing as, as sentiment changes. Shanghai reopening as restaurants restart offering dine-in services. Uh, they want to keep it open. They will keep it open, but that's, that's good to see. The, the restaurants are opening, not just the schools. China's central bank reinforces jobs and inflation goals. PBOC meeting, this is from this morning, uh, yesterday rather, uh, removes pledge to keep debt rate ratio stable. Policy committee vows to step up loan support to small firms. In other words, they're throwing out all rules out the window to, to ramp up the economy with their forceful stimulus. That thing, that was the most viral TikTok I've ever, not TikTok, uh, Twitter tweet that I've ever done. Uh, went crazy with the amount of likes and retweets and everything else. So uh, thanks for that. Forceful stimulus, everyone loved that. All right, um, anyway. So the People's Bank of China reiterated a pledge to provide stronger monetary policy support for the economy, emphasize goals to stabilize jobs and inflation, and providing further signals it will focus on boosting credit growth. That's for consumption. That's where Alibaba benefits. PBOC will coordinate work on stabilizing unemployment and prices. Global. Uh, Okay, uh, Governor Yi signaled in an interview this week that monetary stimulus would likely focus on boosting credit. Um, uh, Goldman Sachs suggests that policymakers might aim to accelerate credit growth in the near term. Uh, take advantage of a rise. Uh, Central Bank will also take advantage of a rise in domestic grain supply and stable energy markets to keep prices basically stable. There's, they have stable energy markets and grains because they've been buying from Russia while we've been uh, cutting off. So they're benefiting from our sanctions um, and we're just pumping money and a strategic advantage into China. Uh, for now, it's been since January. So, you know, going on six months uh, and that looks like it's going to continue to happen. Uh, official jobless rates reaffirmed. Any boost to sentiment will depend on how the government manages COVID outbreaks moving forward. Ease some rules this week. Future income. A gauge measuring the looseness of monetary policy in the eyes of bankers climbed for the second straight quarter with 40% of respondents saying the policy was loose, up 13 percentage points from the previous quarter. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all the things we said were coming are coming. China allows Kanzun and Full Truck Alliance apps to resume user registration. This is a big deal. Again, another uh, check on the box for the regulatory crackdown winding down. Uh, these, like Didi, they were forced to stop using their apps and signing up new users. Now the government has uh, um, allowed them to begin doing that, so they're back operating as normal. Um, China eases quarantine restrictions for travelers. I think they took it from 21 days down to 10. 
why it might be time to bet on Las Vegas Sands. We own Las Vegas Sands. We, we certainly like that call, and we think over the next two or three years, uh, that's a, a double pretty, pretty, uh, with, with pretty good assurity um, uh, moving forward. It's just too cheap at these levels, and they've got a great moat. If you've actually ever been to this, um, I don't have the picture here, but if you've been to the Sands in Macau, which I have, it's a sight to be seen. Like they have these crystal chandeliers like that are like maybe 100 feet all through. It's like a football field of casino tables. Uh, absolutely unbelievable, right in the center of Macau. Uh, so, so we agree with that call. China continues to snap up Russian coal at steep discounts. So not only are they loading up on energy and coal, so they may actually be able to do two things. Number one, use their forceful stimulus to get 5.5% GDP growth this year as Xi has commanded his lieutenants to do uh, no matter what, despite the fact they were shut down for two or three or four months, depending on the area. Uh, but they might be able to avoid massive inflation despite all the stimulus. Why? Because they're buying their energy at a monstrous discount, uh, unlike uh, the, the rest of the world who is paying a premium. So, the, you know, energy is the input cost for everything. China now has a clear strategic advantage buying as much as they want from Russia at tremendous discounts. So that is a big deal moving forward. And China tech investor defies skeptics with $900 million fundraise. Uh, China-focused venture firm uh, poised to raise about $900 million for a new fund focusing on investment in China. A rare feat amid skepticism about the political and market risk of Asia, the largest economy. So, you know, these guys, the smart guys are figuring it out. They're going in now. Uh, the dumb guys will be in in two years after everything's recovered. Uh, but, you know, and there'll be a lot more in two years than there are now. But, you know, some of the super smart guys like that guy with the largest private equity firm and this guy raising a fund and Dalio's been in there like crazy. Uh, U.S. listed full truck resume user registrations. We covered that. Uh, China's factory activity expands for the first time in four months. The official PMI came out this morning, rose to 50.2. Anything above 50 is... Uh, expansion and it was 49.6 in May which was contraction when they were shut down so that's a move in the right direction China home sales slump eases in June after support measures so uh, local governments ease buying curbs cut mortgage rates and partially relaxed ownership rules uh, so they're they're trying to stimulate everything uh, China's World-beating stock market rally is forecast to strengthen even more. About 70% of poll participants main, will maintain or boost holdings. Share indices in China and Hong Kong seen rising at least 4%. It's official. Chinese equities are once again in vogue after months of regulatory crackdowns. Opinion follows trend. Um, this is funny. This one's from Bloomberg no News. No one's even willing to put their name on a positive article about China. <laughs> they just do it from the, the board. Um, but uh, anyway, Chinese equities are once again in vogue after months of regulatory crackdowns, deleveraging and stringent virus curbs wiped out trillions of dollars off benchmark gauges. A Bloomberg survey of 19 fund managers and analysts predicts that benchmark stock indices of China and Hong Kong will post gains of at least 4% by year end to outperform their global peers. Uh, about 70% of those polled plan to maintain or boost holdings of shares in mainland and financial hub in the next three months. 
Optimism marks a stunning reversal from March when investors raced to trim exposure into the uninvestable note from JP Morgan to Chinese assets on fears that the nation's COVID lockdowns and the war on Ukraine would dampen economic growth. A recent easing of virus restrictions has propelled the CSI 300 to the brink of a bull market, and a loose policy stance has helped local equities defy the recent sell-off in global stocks. COVID restrictions will gradually ease under the backdrop of stability as the overreaching priority. The government may provide a relatively loose monetary environment in the second half with liquidity benefiting stocks as Fang Rui, Managing Director at Shanghai Wu Sheng Investment Management Partnership. We're quite optimistic on valuation recovery, also lifting the, the indices higher. Survey of investors and analysts in China and Hong Kong sees the Shanghai Composite rising 4.6 uh, and 4.4 for the year. They expect an 8% advance for the Hang Seng, which is the tech heavy. Anticipate further policy steps to boost growth. Uh, this is not optimism, by the way. This is like coming out of the bunker. They'll get more optimistic as the price goes up. Trust me. The optimism is reflected in recent China bouncing shares, rallying about 19% from an April low after Beijing lifted the lockdowns in major cities. Uh, Baba's up was up some 50% off their March lows, uh, and it's uh, just getting started in our view. Momentum also turning more positive on U.S. Listed Chinese stock with the NASDAQ Golden Dragon Index poised for its first quarterly gain in more than a year. The same thing happened in 2009, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the uh, Chinese indices bottomed three or four months before the U.S. indices. So extrapolating that forward, if that holds true this time, that would mean the U.S. indices bottom in June or early July. I think that's a reasonable expectation, and we'll go into why as we move, move along here. Um, that's fueled a rush of buying as global funds purchased a net 73 billion yuan, $10.9 billion of onshore stocks via trading links in June, the largest monthly inflow since December. Capital flows into China are set to get a further boost when dozens of mainland listed ETFs are made available to overseas investors through Stock Connect program starting July 4th. That's interesting. Set to get a further boost. Okay, a good run. China stocks outperformed global peers by the most since late 2014 this quarter. That's very positive to see. You don't get these lines up without a massive move uh, in BABA and other uh, uh, bellwethers like Tencent, JD, etc. The upbeat forecast for Chinese equities contrasts with the more negative outlook for U.S. stocks with Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, among those pre predicting Wall Street will see further declines. Etc. So weaker yuan, equity versus bonds. So that you get the story there. Hang Seng, uh, China's tech stocks are the most attractive in the world, Invesco says. <laughs> Mind you, this is coming out after Baba's up 50% off the bottom. Just, just saying, opinion follows trend. But uh, this is still going to be a great call because it hasn't even started. So uh, China is the best place to buy tech stocks as valuations in the U.S. remain too high to be attractive, according to Invesco. Beijing's crackdown on everything from tech to property to online education sparked a year of heavy selling that wiped out $2 trillion from the Hang Seng Tech Index at the height of the route. That's now reversing as loose monetary policy and improving growth outlook outweighs concerns about the country's COVID zero policy and firm's global head of asset allocation research, Paul Jackson said in an interview, the slump opened up a valuation point where the market is trading in a low range historically in absolute terms at almost half compared to the U.S., said Jackson at Invesco, which oversees about $1.45 trillion in assets. If you're going to buy tech stocks, it's best to do so in China. Okay, so 
etc., etc., etc. So, you know, I think, by the way, you know, the U.S. is trading heavy because people are expecting this next shoe to drop where they think that the earnings, so when you say it's trading at, the S&P is trading at, you know, 14.7 times next year's earnings, that's cheap. Well, people will come back and say, well, that's because the E is not true. The E is going to come down. I think what people are underestimating about China is they say, wow, the multiples are low. Uh, that's a good thing on a relative basis. But what they're underestimating is how much the E is going to go back up now that the crackdown is over, now that the stimulus is starting to kick in, now that the cities are starting to open up, I think the E is going to explode, which is going to make the, the multiples have to catch up to that level of growth. So I think it's kind of the inverse of what you're seeing uh, in, in the United States. Uh, Michael Burry of Big Short Fame warns the Fed may alter course. Uh, that shouldn't be a warning. That should be an opportunity. And that's what we said before Michael Burry said it, which is that like 1994, where they did the 75 basis point cut in December, uh, eight months later in July of 1995, they were, they were cutting again. And I think we're going to see the exact same situation happening, if not uh, probably by early next year, we'll see the first Fed cut um, as things start to stabilize and inflation continues to roll over. Wall Street's favorite stock sector has potential upside of 43% as we enter the second half of 2022. I tend to agree with this. Um, you know, one of the things we do every week uh, uh, when Carter puts out the earnings is we go through stock by stock, see which ones are being revised up and, you know, uh, and revised down and what's happening uh, relative to price. Um, and consumer discretionary um, price change, the sector's down 32% year to date. Um, I think the earnings are too low. Decline in forward PE is down 26%. But if you look on a, uh, at the top 30 weights, you know, starting with Amazon, I, I, again, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I've been emphasizing this throughout this period. I think when you look back three to five years from now, Amazon is going to be one of the greatest opportunities that came out of 2022. Um, Aptiv, I don't know it very well, but we've been looking at that. Um, AutoZone's already had a run because everyone's anticipating a recession that people are going to keep their 13-year-old cars and keep repairing them. Part of that's true, but dealer inventories need to be rebuilt and there's still a backlog for, um, for new cars. Uh, Best Buy. Best Buy, one of our listeners, Jacob L., did a great presentation, actually sent me a solid deck. And um, the thing that I'm skeptical um, I like the thesis, and, I, and uh, his analysis was fantastic. Um, the thing that is very important to me when I go into a new position is not just that it's cheap and it should revert back to the mean, is what are the specific catalysts that are going to cause a change and, and have the stock be re-rated and get back to a normalized multiple. Right now, I don't see any catalysts that are going to re-rate um, Best Buy, despite having a great uh, return on invested capital over time, great management, they did the restructuring 10 years ago, um, etc. There's no catalyst. Now, if you said to me, uh, well, just, you know, it's fine, just wait on it three to five years, it's going to double. Uh, I think that's probably true. But I would like near, I like near term catalysts with 
Cooper Standard, I know exactly what needs to happen. The chips need to come in. They need to have a monster quarter like they had uh, before the shortage started after the pandemic drop. Uh, they need, um, uh, and then from there, they're going to get, people are going to be clamoring to do their refinancing. That'll be the next catalyst once they do their refinancing. Uh, that probably takes the stock into the mid-20s. Uh, and then from there, then it's just a waiting game to get to that normalized EBITDA of 350 $9 a share, 10 to 20 multiple, 20 to 30 bagger. Um, with Best Buy, I don't see what the catalyst is that's going to cause the market to re-rate it um, other than just the market going up and um, people feeling better about the consumer, which could happen right away. But I do like this long-term thesis. I just don't know where it bottoms before it goes back up and makes new highs. So this one is like a long-term investment, very good, very solid thesis. But I think uh, the key for getting interested in this would be define some catalysts. What would be some turning points that would have the stock re-rate? And the way you figure that out is go back through history, read all the earnings conference calls, read all of the um, uh, analyst notes during the period of time that it was you know, trading at these ridiculously low multiples and what changed that the multiple went back to normalized and the stock re-rated. And is there anything on the horizon that could do that? Or is just pessimism so acute that eventually it has to return? But um, for something that has, you know, a 1x or 1.5x upside, I need it to double much faster than three years. If it's, you know, or, or four years. Um, uh, so I would need like a two, a three-bagger or four-bagger to, to wait three to five years uh, on just to get the right compound annual growth rate that's going to dramatically exceed the S&P net of fees. Otherwise, it's a bad use of capital. Um, uh, but I do think this will work. So that's that's worth continued investigation. I, j- I just don't know where it bottoms before it gets re-rated. Uh, booking holdings, again, like look at these these stocks, guys. And this is the sector that no one wants to touch. Mark my words, three, four years ago, three, three four years from now, when you look you know, down from 188 bucks to 100 bucks, this is Amazon, folks. This has a moat. <laughs> this has Amazon Web Services. This is the Alibaba of the United States. How could you resist <laughs> trading down? We used to, you know, uh, talk about Alibaba as the uh, Amazon of China. Well, Amazon is the Alibaba of the United States. That's what we're going to be saying, trying to get convince people to get back into U.S. tech in the next six months. Uh, look how well Alibaba is doing. Imagine if you could own the Alibaba uh, in, in, in the U.S. So that's that. Uh, booking holdings, that's a travel stock. I, I think this is going to be fine. These things have just been left for dead. Everyone assumes the consumer is completely dead. We're going into a severe recession or depression, and I think that's not going to be the case. Chipotle Me- Mexican Group, uh, this, is, this stock has just always been too expensive for me. It's kind of like Tesla. It just, you know, it's, it goes in my too hard box. Um, DHI, the housing stocks are the cheapest in the market. Um, we're, you know, getting closer and closer here. I know rates have gone up, but the, the key, as I've said for the last six months, is going to be those players, it, you know, the shortage we're underbuilt. The demand is exceeding the supply. You saw a taste of that in the last two years. Rising rates dampens that demand. But the the key is they've been building these 4,000 to 6,000 square foot houses for the last 20 years. 
the Toll Brothers of the world for baby boomers because they were following the biggest part of the demography. Now the biggest part of the demography is, are the millennials, which are bigger than the boomers, which are 31 years old, and they don't need, to, they might like to have a four to 6,000 square foot house as their starter house, but they don't need a four to 6,000 square foot house. And if you look at the 70s when the boomers were their age, um, they were all these three bedroom, one bath, three bedroom, two bath ranches, think like Levittown, that was in the 50s, which was the last boom before then. We're going to see a massive amount of 1,200 to 2,000 square foot houses built. And the home builders that are going to focus on that market to meet the supply from the millennials, not what the millennials think they want, but what the millennials can afford even at 5 or 6% rates, uh, um, that's where the opportunity is going to be. So focus on the lower end home builders with a track record of success. And I think they're, they're in the range of where, you know, it can start to make sense to, to uh, pick them up with the long view because that demand is not going away. But again, it's the smaller houses that we've been talking about for some time. Uh, Dollar Tree, that's already moved. Uh, eBay, I would consider looking into it here. Um, I'd have to understand the business a little bit better in modern days, but um, Expedia, again, another travel stock. No one's gonna travel. Yeah, I'll take the other side of that trade. Um, Ford. So, you know, people that can't find things to do that say everything's overvalued are completely missing the boat. This is one sector to start with. Home Depot, we've covered in recent weeks. Uh, not recent weeks. We covered it on uh, Clayman, uh, the Clayman Countdown last week. Um, Hilton, same travel story. You know, here's Lennar. Uh, Lodes is the same story as Home Depot. Marriott. McDonald's. All right, what else do we have here? Nike, we covered last week. That's bottoming here. The, the overhang was China. China's coming back with a vengeance. Uh, Roth stores, I don't know well enough. I'd have to do some work. Starbucks, same story. China overhang, that's things going to take off. Um, Target, uh, I'd have to look at it a little bit closer. But this is how pessimistic everything is on the uh, consumer side. Tesla, this is interesting. Uh, I w you know, not for me, but um, I'd have to look at that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I can never bet against the guy. The question is, will I ever bet with him? Uh, I, I hope so, but we'll, we'll see. I, I don't think it's, it's ready yet. I mean, the problem is, is I could easily see this breaking back out now if we get a summer rally, but that, that to me is, I just, it's, it's too expensive for me. I, that's in the too hard box. Um, okay, moving right along. Uh, U.S. to ramp up military presence in Europe to counter Russia. Those of you who have given up on defense and aerospace, uh, you just got to hang tight. And as a matter of fact, we're going to cover with Philip tomorrow, you know, how many of their best money-making positions went against them huge. I think, I'm uh, cuffing it here, but I think it was Jap Japanese banks in the early 2000s, I don't have my notes in front of me, were like one of the positions went 70% against them before it went up like 10x. Um, and they didn't even blink. Why? Number one, you know, there are three things that will kill, <laughs> kill uh, an investor you know, um, or, or a fortune. Uh, ladies, liquor, and leverage is, is the old saying. Uh, now, nowadays, I would say um, 
liquor and leverage still apply. And then uh, depending on your starting sex, uh, you know, would be ladies or men, whatever you're into and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, I think that uh, still holds true. If you don't have the leverage, uh, you can withstand the short-term volatility that often makes zero sense relative to the underlying fundamentals. And that's usually because at those points of acute pain, there are funds blowing up and, and forced selling. It has nothing to do with the future prospects of the business. That has nothing to do uh, you know, with the PE multiple or the fundamental work that you did for 20 hours to find the greatest stock. I mean, you know, a, a Best Buy, for instance, that thing could go down to 40 before it goes to 140. It has nothing to do with the underlying business. It just has to do with people get so pessimistic on the consumer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but ultimately, the, the business will re-rate. It will revert to its norm. It is a well-run business. And it's the last one standing in the in-person tech uh, you know, if you want to buy something or fix something that's not Apple, the only place you can go is Best Buy. So there is a nice little moat around that and no one's really going to enter that space. Um, okay, so yeah, we're still bullish long term on defensive. As we said, regardless of what happens with Russia, the commitments for NATO are going to go up. Everyone's going to be spending more on defense. All the contractors are going to do better and better and better. Uh, Oak Trees Howard Marks, who uh, is finding bargains, I'm starting to behave aggressively. Uh, so that's that. Opinion follows trend. ECB to activate first line of defense in bond market on Friday. This is what we covered last week. They uh, basically said uh, we're doing quantitative easing again when we have to. Uh, so they didn't even get into quantitative tightening before they started buying bonds again. Raging U.S. inflation is starting to cool. Key price gauge signals. This is the key price gauge that the Fed watches most closely, which is the core CPE rate. Um, and I think we have that right here. And you can see that it's now the third month in a row. This definitely looks like peak inflation. Uh, if we got a break from oil, we'd really, really be rocking it. And uh, maybe uh, MBS will show some mercy to our leaders as they go crawling on their knees to beg them to pump a little more oil. If they have the capacity to do so, we shall see. Um, all right, moving right along. This is the article I wanted to cover. So the title is uh, Big Pharma Won't Bail Out Battered Tech. While biotech market route represents pharma companies with cheap targets, don't count on a handful of deals to turn into critical mass. The stock market, so basically it's taking aim directly at my thesis that Number one, drug approvals will, will come back. And number two, uh, the animal spirits started with uh, Pfizer buying Biohaven. And we went through multiple deals last week that are just the start of this. Um, okay. Now, his core thesis to discredit our thesis, and he's not you know, saying Tom Hayes of Great Hill Capital said X, Y, Z. Here's why he's wrong. He's saying that if you're expecting a rebound, basically he's piling onto the negativity uh, along with those people selling in the hole. So what you need is articles like this to get the last few hopeful people out of their stock. You've got to steal the stock from these people that have been clinging to hope, take them fully out and start fresh with people like me that come in and buy from these weakened sellers due to articles like this. This is just, you know, whether it's coincident or causal or whatever, it happens every single time. You need 
the selling report, the, the sell side report from JP Morgan saying China stocks are uninvestable to take the very last few people. As a matter of fact, one person that used to send a lot of AMA questions uh, about Alibaba that just basically threw in their hands at $75. Now that Alibaba is back up 50%, they're DMing me on uh, Twitter every day with a new positive article about Alibaba. Um, and, you know, they, they, you know, they got crushed. They sold in the hole. They've missed the first leg of the up rally. That's the bad news. The good news is there's still plenty more to go. The problem is, is there, you know, the thing's probably going to shoot up maybe 130 or something like that. They'll finally get sucked back in. Then you'll get a rip back down to 110. They'll get taken out and then you'll just run up to 200 and they'll have missed it.